Um, welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast live stream, day five. Uh, it is Wednesday, October 11th. I'm Nora Barrows Friedman uh, with Asa Wynn Stanley and our good executive director, Ali Abunima. We're going to have um, some more uh, uh, guests, uh, especially um, some voices as we can try to find them from uh, inside uh, Gaza as well as the West Bank. Um, and uh, and we're also going to have Loki with us uh, from the UK. Uh, <clears throat> Ali, if you could begin by talking about what we know up to this point. Um, the breaking news that we're hearing right now is that um, uh, rockets from Palestinian resistance have uh, uh, reached Haifa, according to the latest reports. Um, and uh, it looks like the Northern Theater is um, potentially opening at this point. Um, can you can you talk about what we know? Well, what we know is that Hamas says that they fired a long-range rocket towards Haifa, which of course is in the north of uh, Palestine. And uh, it's unclear if this rocket was launched from Gaza or from Lebanon. That certainly suggests that things are escalating quickly. And at the same time, there have been uh, the warning sirens sounding in Israeli communities across the north in the Galilee. And in the past uh, few hours, there have been renewed exchanges of fire between Israeli forces and Hezbollah in South Lebanon. Uh, those have been going on since yesterday, and today Hezbollah retaliated, it seems, for the killing of three of its fighters by Israel yesterday, and Israel has acknowledged that two of its soldiers have been killed uh, by the Hezbollah uh, retaliatory fire. So that is developing as we speak, and uh, as far as I can tell, the situation is still quite unclear. But what we can see in the past 24 hours it, with regard to Gaza is a horrifying escalation in the situation. The uh, death toll has climbed now to close to 1,000, uh, 5,000 injured, and the territory has plunged into darkness. The, elec the electricity plant has ceased operating. Hospitals are operating on their last reserves on uh, emergency fuel. And of course, when the electricity goes out for 2 million people, uh, also the water pumps go out in Gaza. The water has to be pumped uh, electrically. So it's a catastrophic and rapidly deteriorating situation. But the important thing to note here is that this is Israel's intention. This is a, a really a genocidal war on Palestinians in Gaza, declared as such by Israel. The defense minister uh, referred to Palestinians as human beasts. And uh, when he declared that he would be imposing a total siege, Israel has threatened to bomb any aid convoys from Gaza, from, sorry, from Egypt, and has bombed the Rafah border crossing now several times. So uh, there is an intent, there is a, 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 a planned intent by Israel to cause as much suffering to the population in Gaza as possible. 
and the scenes of carnage are simply un unbearable. I want to just uh, spend a minute or two on the political context. Since yesterday, Joe Biden, uh, the U.S. president, of course, gave a very belligerent speech in which he talked about the sheer evil of Hamas and repeated uh, Israeli propaganda stories, uh, baseless stories about rapes and so on that have been circulating on the Internet. And today we learned that these were actually fed to him by Benjamin Netanyahu himself. Uh, and I'll say a bit about that now. But what I want to say about Biden's speech that is so terrifying is that it really gives a complete green light to Israel to do whatever it wants to Gaza. And he even said that Israel's response has to be overwhelming. There's been no sign from the United States of any call for restraint from Israel. On the contrary, it's open encouragement to commit the kind of mass atrocities we're seeing. But what Netanyahu told uh, Biden, according to uh, a readout that uh, was published uh, today of their phone call, of one of their phone calls yesterday, is that uh, Netanyahu claimed, uh, quote, we've never seen such savagery uh, in the history of the state, nor since the Holocaust. Uh, Netanyahu apparently uh, compared what happened uh, with Gaza's uh, assault on Israel to Babi Yar, the single worst massacre of the Holocaust when 34,000 Jews were murdered by Ukrainian nationalists and their German allies during World War II in Kiev. And uh, this is the kind of comparison that Netanyahu is making. And he also said uh, that Hamas is, quote, even worse than ISIS, and we need to treat them as such. And what that seems to me is simply laying the groundwork and providing the uh, dehumanizing atrocity propaganda that Israel needs in order to convince international public opinion that its genocidal attack on Gaza is justified. And justified in terms of the usual war of civilizations language that colonial powers always use. We saw this during the struggle in apartheid South Africa when the white South African newspapers were constantly full of atrocity stories. I'm not going to preempt the discussion that we had with, we're going to have with Loki uh, and some of our guests about this propaganda, uh, but it, it is a major factor now in um, inciting public opinion to support massacres of, of Palestinians. And the final thing I want to touch on is what comes next, uh, because of course, now Israeli forces are massing uh, for what is an expected ground invasion, and they have called up hundreds of thousands of reserves, and Israeli officials have made, uh, again, really, I, I can't describe them as anything other than genocidal statements in terms of saying Gaza will become a city of tents, it will never be the same again, what we're going to do to Gaza will be remembered for generations, and statement after statement after statement of intent. But in the Washington Post today, there is an interesting column 
by David Ignatius, one of the in-house columnists who is always very close to U.S. intelligence services and tends to sort of reflect their thinking. And his column today uh, is titled, In Hamas, Israel Faces a Formidable and Technologically Sophisticated Foe. And the gist of the article is that any kind of ground invasion into Gaza will not be easy for Israel. He says, uh, I'll just read, I won't read the whole thing, obviously, a couple of paragraphs, but he says, Israeli forces will be counterattacking through a maze of tall buildings laced with hidden garrisons and booby-trapped passageways. On every floor of every building, there could be a threat. And underneath this hostile city, there are miles of tunnels hiding not just Hamas fighters, but also up to 150 Israeli hostages. This will be one of the most difficult military operations in recent decades, exceeding the challenges we faced in Iraq, says Norman Rule, former chief of the CIA's operations against Iran. Gaza's urban area is crowded and large, but it also has a large number of multi-floor buildings that must be cleared of weapons and terrorists who don't wear uniforms. We should steel ourselves for heavy civilian and military casualties. And he also says that... uh, that U.S. officials believe that Hamas will have prepared very well for a ground invasion. He writes, Hamas must have anticipated that Israel would attack Gaza in revenge. What defenses did they prepare? And he says, according to one Western official, the intelligence services of Jordan and Egypt have given Israel a grim warning. Their agents inside Gaza report that Hamas has prepared improvised explosive devices, anti-tank weapons, and other defenses along the avenues of approach into the enclave, according to this source. So whatever comes next, uh, it promises to be just as horrifying as everything we've seen. But I think the key takeaway here is that Israel wants to project that it has a plan, that it knows what it's doing, that it's proceeding with determination. But I think the takeaway really is that Israel doesn't have a plan, doesn't have any military solution. Uh, The only uh, quote-unquote solution it has is to inflict as much damage and death as it can. And as we know, it's very good at that. Thank you, Ali. Uh, he's our executive director here at the Electronic Intifada. I wanted to bring in uh, one of our contributors to EI, Abdallah Nami. He is uh, joining us live from Megazi refugee camp, which is in the center of the Gaza Strip. Uh, Abdallah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, tell us what's happening outside your window and uh, right now and uh, what the past you know, 72 hours have been like for you. Thank you, Nora, Ali, and Eva, for having me today. What's happening here in Gaza today has exceeded the term of genocide against civilians by the Israeli occupation. It's really hard to find the words to describe what's happening outside my window and in in the Gaza Strip in general right now. The the deafening sounds of explosions uh, are heard from from all directions, nonstop. The, it's, it's, it's really 
hard to go by not our daily lives but but just to continue living in in, in such circumstances nothing can dispel our fears as the as hundreds of israeli uh, war planes are roaming our skies and throwing thousands of of explosives and and bombs specifically targeting uh, highly residential areas um, mosques schools and even med medical staff and medical facilities causing the death of or killing more than a thousand people and this is only the only the, the casualties we know about there are probably more uh, hundreds or even thousands are, uh, who are still trapped under the the wreckage and under the the destroyed buildings in all across the Gaza Strip from Jabalia camp to to Rafah. Um, again, it's, it, it, this Israeli attack is unprecedented, and really the the level of, of brutality and the level of violence we have never seen before. Uh, for example. Uh, the, the the idea of the people who are leaving now or have left their homes uh, really portrays portrays the images of a second Nakba here in Gaza these days. More than three hundred thousand people have uh, have evacuated and evacuated their homes and went running down the the the, the streets looking for a safe place. But unfortunately, no, play, no place is safe today in Gaza. I mean, even the schools, who, who, which was supposed to be the safe place of the Gaza, with the place they can evacuate to, escape to from from the horrors of the Israeli bombing, is now uh, targeted. In, in, in several schools have been already targeted, and others are in danger, uh, in danger as well. Uh, I, I also want to add that we have been through a lot. When when I see when I say that the level of destruction and the level of brutality we see in the Israeli uh, attack uh, is is like is like nothing we have ever seen before. I mean, we have seen a lot, but the the the, the new thing about this or the new feeling about this Israeli attack is that death has never felt so serious, has never felt so close. Death in Gaza today can be seen in the images of the babies who are being bowled out of the, 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 the destroyed building, can be smelled through the air of which is polluted by smoke and, and gunpowder by the Israeli occupation bombs can be heard in all directions. So now it, it makes, um, we can say, uh, an internal conflict. It's, 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 uh, it's really a new, a new feeling that I'm experiencing that I've never felt that so close. And it's really hard to, to talk about. It's really hard to, for me to, to, to put the words together to describe this feeling. I mean, when I come face to face with the idea of, okay, I can I, I can be bombed and 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 killed at any moment, is is really too hard to, to to be dealt with. I mean, when I think of this idea, 
comes to my mind all the plans I've made for the future, all my hopes. I, I wanted to, to have a successful career. I wanted to get married and start a family, which which all can't be just overlooked or, or ignored when, when I'm thinking about, about this. I can't just okay, say, okay, I'm going to die and, and be okay with it. I mean, this is just on the, on the personal level. What about my family? I, I'm here at home with my family over 12 who are having it just as hard as I am and even worse with, with having two kids, a toddler and an infant here at the house which make which make it even more challenging and more harder to to survive the Israeli attacks when 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 you have kids that you they need to be uh, comforted they they need to be uh, calmed which is really as I said a challenging task when 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 the adults us are even as scared or even more scared than the kids themselves. Abdullah, um, can you talk about uh, what's going on in Magazi camp where you are right now, um, the, the level of uh, destruction that Israel has meted out in your area? Um, and also if you could, you know, you're, you're a journalist. You, this, is, this is your, your job is to, to, to witness and report and investigate. Um, have you been able to do any sort of, uh, have you been able to leave to, to see what's happening at places like Shifa Hospital, which uh, is now, you know, the, the largest shelter for people in the, in, in the Gaza Strip? Um, you know, Shifa is working on, on barely any medications left. Uh, and as Ali said in the introduction, uh, electricity has been cut. And uh, as we know, hospitals are forced to run on generators, but very soon the fuel will run out. W what, is, what is it like uh, right now in Megazi and in places like Shifa? Honestly, I couldn't leave the house anywhere like more than 100 meters away. I just could go to the, to the market next to us to get some supplies for my family because it's really hard to to do, to even go to to the main streets as they've been uh, they've been really heavily targeted by the Israeli occupation mainly to to block the the ways or the roads in front of ambulances and and journalists. Uh, I think this goes with the context of uh, cutting the cutting off the the electricity, the water, and the and the internet connection from Gaza. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a battery which will run out very soon. But uh, Israel want us, wants us to, to, to die in, in quiet. Just, they don't want us to be heard. They don't want us to, to, to talk to the world and, and to show the world the, the, the war crimes that are being committed here in the Gaza Strip, the, the situation in, in my in, in the Magazi camp is is really critical. I mean, just I'm, as I'm talking to you, two of my, my neighbors were received warnings to, to evacuate their homes. The, the the neighborhood just about three, uh, thirty meters away, and another one at the end of our street, which will be bombed in in the next hour or so. Mm. Uh, 
as I said earlier, the, the deafening sound of explosions are heard from everywhere, even in my area. But the problem is that we can't even know or, or have information about the places that are being targeted as uh, the, the, the media coverage is, uh, is suffering uh, so much as a result of the, the cut of the, the cut of the, of the electricity and the internet connection. And Abdullah. Yeah, yes. If I may ask a question first, thank you so much for coming on with everything going on. And it's, I wish we had a chance to meet in a different situation, but we're so grateful for you to, to come on the show. And we're also grateful for all the journalism you've done for us for the Electronic Intifada. But right now, I'm glad that you're staying close to your family and staying as safe as possible. But I, I wanted to ask you, uh, with the announcement by the Israelis that they are cutting off water, electricity, fuel, uh, we learned today that the, uh, elect the electricity generating station in Gaza has shut down. Can you talk about what that situation is like for you and for the people around you? Do you have enough food? Do you have enough water? How do people in Gaza prepare for this? Do they keep supplies in their house because they know that the these wars are coming? What are just some of the day-to-day -day ways that you, people are coping right now to the extent that they are coping? The situation of supplies uh, for the for the Palestinian families in the Gaza Strip is really critical right now. I mean, myself, my family, we uh, we are running low in everything. The water, the, the, the electricity uh, has already been cut off. I mean, the last charge is the one that we are using now, we have no idea what we are, what we are going to do after this. Um, we can't be prepared for some, for some for something like this. I mean, I know that the 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 Gaza Strip ha has been under the Israeli blockade for nearly 16 or 17 years, but uh, let's not forget that it's really hard for the the average family and in, in the Gaza Strip to to get their supplies at at the days even when Israel is not attacking Gaza. It's, and let's not forget that more than 60% of the, the population in the Gaza Strip are, are poor, are in, under the line of poverty. So it's, it's, it's a challenging for them to, 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 to supply, uh, to, uh, to provide the, the needed supplies for, the, for their families. Uh, the, the markets are now running out of, of everything nearly. Uh, the, the water, I mean, in my area, it, 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 we, ha we can have water once every maybe three, three days. We have to, to carry water in buckets to, to, on the stairs to get it to the, to the main tank. And people in other areas of the Gaza Strip, for example, Gaza, ha has it even more harder or, or harder than, than we do. I mean, in the area of Tal El Hawa, they have it once every week. Uh, they can use water, uh, water for, uh, for cleaning purposes. Uh, they can't have enough drinking water. So I think what, what Israel, uh, the Israeli occupation is trying to, to say right now that 
if you guys and could survive our bombings, we will starve you to death. We will cut the, off the food, the, the water. We you will live in darkness until you you die of starvation, which is really uh, just speeding up of a process that have started 16 years ago. I mean, we we, we have never in Gaza had uh, the proper amounts or or uh, sufficient amounts of these supplies: the water, the food, and electricity. So even though we have suffered from such problems before we can't be prepared for such things especially that we don't know uh, how much the the war is going to, to last and unfortunately it looks like we were go we are uh, the face of a long-term war which nobody can be prepared to or prepared for and and abdullah you spoke so movingly about your own feelings and your own fear, which I can only imagine under such a situation. Nobody can know what's going to happen, and we pray to God that uh, he will protect you and everyone in Gaza. Can you just talk about, or let me put it this way, Israel's goal clearly by targeting the civilian population in every way is to break their spirit, is to force the people in Gaza to turn against uh, the resistance or to, to surrender. From your perspective, what what is the uh, feeling around you? How are people feeling? Do they feel, do they feel ready to surrender? Do they feel defiant? uh what's the what's the mood that you see around you uh right now i mean we are all, all aware of how much the palestinians are suffering and we know we, we've seen through the media that the massacres that are being committed the the the, the siege that has been completely been uh, placed on gaza but if there is one thing that the Palestinians can't run of is, is dignity, is the, is the love for, for our country, the love of, of, of our resistance. I've never seen anyone, and I don't think that anyone will surrender or, or, or just to, to, to give the, the Israeli occupation what they want, which is surrendering and, and starting to blame what's the, the, the Israeli war crimes against us on the resistance itself. I mean, when this this policy have been an Israeli policy for, for for several years now, they always used to to kill uh, a large number of people, innocent people, to to lay down mass mass images of destruction in Gaza. So and then use their propaganda to to say that look at the, at this destruction. If if there were no Hamas, there were no destruction or if you just give up and, and choose peace with Israel, you will be fine, which is really not the case. I mean, we at Palestine, we don't, we don't like war. We don't like fighting. We just want to live our lives in dignity on our land. And we are going to, and we are willing to sacrifice everything for, for this purpose. I mean, what do the, the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip have anyway? It's, it's, the, the situation is really hard, even the, uh, when, Israel, when Israel is not attacking the Gaza Strip. The, the, 
let's say we are always we were we have been always under uh, in danger i mean the 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 israeli drones have never left the gaza sky we we, we were always as a, we were we were always as a, as a target for for these drones so we really have nothing to lose our country is our first priority we have always sacrificed our 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 blood our lives our money to our country and we will not we are not ready and we won't uh, surrender we won't give up on that because this is the only thing that we have the only thing that uh, that we can offer to our country and that, that's who we are if we drop off uh, the, the resistance if we, uh, if we just uh, surrender to Israel or or uh, give Israel what, what it wants then we are no longer Palestinians. Abdullah Nami uh, speaking to us from the Megazi refugee camp in central Gaza. Uh, we want to let you go so that you can conserve uh, the little battery that you have left and be with your family. And um, we just, we, we um, are, are with you. And um, please, please stay safe. We will keep in contact with you. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, thank you so much for joining thank us, Abdullah. You. Thank you very much for having Thank me. you. Thank you, Abdullah. Allah yahmikum. And we're going to bring on uh, our our correspondent and contributor, Abdul Jawad Omar from the Occupied West Bank. Uh, Abdul Jawad, how are you? Uh, what you know, it, with with all the news coming from out of Gaza right now, um, there is also pogroms and attacks by uh, by settlers and soldiers in the occupied West Bank as well. Um, can you can you tell us what's happening there and and uh, and what and what you're seeing unfold? Well, there today there's been three martyrs by settlers in the village of Qusra near Ramallah. And there has been uh, um, things are heating up in the West Bank more broadly as Israel um, in this very vulnerable moment, makes it clear that its uh, firing policy has become very free. Um, more than 20 martyrs in the West Bank uh, as of now. Uh, a lot of clashes, demonstrations, and things are slowly moving in the West Bank into a situation where um, I think in the next couple of days, um, more and more uh, wider participation by the population in the various events and attempts to also engage um, um, in this war for Palestinian existence and uh, Palestinian persistence on their land uh, because things have been uh, going in a way where it seems like it's an existential struggle both in Gaza but also in the West Bank. Um, so yeah, this is the current mo mood. The West Bank has its difficulties and complexities that is different than Gaza, um, including a Torjan horse um, embodied in the PA, um, which leaves us uh, vulnerable to Israeli attacks with no defensive measures whatsoever. Um, its stance on cooperation remains the same. The same. It's attempting at this moment to basically uh, wait this out and see the, the results 
Um, but eventually, I think um, what happened in Gaza, what's happening in the north, um, will have deep repercussions on the situation in the West Bank as well. Another element is that the organized resistance movement in the north has been engaged in a lot of shooting attacks, which have gone uh, uncovered because of the enormity of the uh, situation in Gaza. So also within that realm and domain, there has been a lot of clashes uh, and engagements by the resistance movement in the north, whether in Jenin, Tulkarem, and other places. So this is the current, at least, paradigm of how things are operating in the West Bank as of this moment. But I can see that things will uh, uh, shift as uh, the bombing in Gaza continues and the massacres continues. Uh, it's you know it's so hard to get um, kind of the granular information uh, right now because of just the overwhelm of everything that's happening. But what what do you know about the uh, you know, face-to-face -face, uh, battles between Palestinian resistance fighters and uh, soldiers in in the 48 areas between you know uh, between Gaza and and the West Bank as fighters have uh, been pushing uh, eastward. Do, is there any information uh, about that 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 you can update us on? I mean, there's two sources of information, what Israel is actually uh, publishing and what the resistance manages to also give us. But I think a lot of what happened in the past couple of days is still unknown and mm. it's still questionable, including the wide and organized disinformation campaign that has taken Western media um, and actually blinded it. Because I think um, not only have they became just stooges of the Israeli military spokespersons, um, just repeating and echoing whatever they say, um, they have also felt prey to uh, a lot of this information about the events that happened within uh, the Gaza envelope, uh, the settlements surrounding Gaza. I'm not sure of the facts, um, but it doesn't make sense from a military standpoint, specifically that Hamas was, and the resistance more broadly, was more interested in delaying any form of Israeli clearance of the envelope to just enter and commit massacres all over. Right. I think their strategy was more of taking hostages and attempting to negotiate. I think, but this is just a speculation, is that at some point Israeli military brass decided that they will not negotiate with any hostage-taking situation and will end it swiftly, which meant that in the crossfire or otherwise, a lot of also Israeli settlers were killed. So I think in many ways, the lack of skepticism, the lack of critical review, um, this is a disinformation campaign on large scale that has also been repeated by the Prime Minister of Israel. And it has, I think it has two elements to it. The first is trying to actually, uh, you know, regenerate Israel's own will to fight and will to revenge and, and create more of a trust and unity in Israeli society in attacking Gaza and creating the massacres. So trying to shift the accountability for what happened away from the military brass and the intelligence services and into the you know uh, ultimate enemy, conflating Hamas with Daesh and all that uh, discourse that we've heard also from Biden uh, yesterday. So that, that's one element to it. And the second element is, is allowing Israel by its international media campaign and disinformation campaign to commit as much horrible crimes as possible in Gaza before the world becomes enraged with its actions. 
And this is what's happening, at least from the, my perspective. The, the second element, look, in terms of the clashes, I think um, they have slowly subsided. Um, there's still some infiltration attempts here and there. Um, I think we've now turned into the second phase of this war. Um, and this second phase is more of a defensive posture by the resistance in, in the Gaza Strip and attempting um, a containment policy for Israel's reaction through also the threat of uh, opening of other fronts in the north, but also through preparation for a wide and scale, large or, uh, wide or, and large scale invasion of Gaza if that happens or occurs in the, the next couple of days. It's Abdul Jawad uh, Omar. He is a, a scholar and journalist uh, speaking to us from uh, the Occupied West Bank. Um, what what is you know what are the conversations like right now uh, with you and your colleagues and and friends and family about um, about the the possibility of a ground invasion and how um, yeah uh, what you know the, the the terms of the terrain is are are quickly changing minute by minute. Um, what could that look like, and um, and what could that mean strategically for uh, Palestinian resistance um, in the West Bank? I mean, look, um, it's always hard to predict things and to chart out scenarios. But I think uh, Ali was making a very important point in his introduction which is that we have an Israel military um, that in the past 20 years has proven defective when it comes to maneuvers on the ground. Uh, its use of the ground force has always been, uh, or not has always been, but at least in the past 20 years has been very uh, weak, feeble, incapable, and incompetent. And um, it can sow destruction, but at the same time, it it's very risky and dangerous territory for Israel itself. And I think um, this lack of thinking on, on the level of um, the military and intelligence pass in Israel, um, this seeking of revenge um, is leading them to a lot of miscalculations. And they're also leading the region into a war. Um, and I think that in many ways, on a strategic level, if they enter Gaza on the ground and also come out with nothing substantial to show for, not only will Israeli society hold them accountable for their uh, failures, the initial failures, but also the later failures, but also I think that will change the terrain of politics and the world we live in, um, in terms of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. This, is, this was not an insignificant event. This was not something that just a routine military operation. This has created a psychological break. Israel has not been able to still retain its psychological balance. And I think it will be hard for it to do so, even with a ground invasion. The only thing that it could do, which is uh, also a possibility, is doing a mass ethnic cleansing campaign in Gaza or otherwise, or other places as well. But that also remains uh, problematic for it, for its standing in the world, for its legitimacy, uh, for its uh, also its own citizens, but also it could also not be successful. So I think we're in this moment where people, again, feel a sense of horror 
and a sense of uh, anticipation of where the events could lead. And I think the West Bank, although now it's relatively quiet, but heating up slowly, um, would pay a heavy and hefty price if uh, the resistance in Gaza is defeated. Um, uh, I think what happened, what hap what's happening in Gaza would also, uh, at, at least in the medium run, happen also in the West Bank. Uh, Abdul Jawad, if I may uh, ask a, a couple of questions. Uh, the One of the uh, pieces I read, I think it was in Haaretz, written by Charles Freilich, who is a uh, former Israeli national security advisor and a professor at Columbia University and Tel Aviv University, uh, wrote a piece which I suspect reflects to some extent the thinking of the Israeli military political echelon. And he was talking about how Israel has to go into Gaza on the ground. There's no other option. We have to restore deterrence and so on, all the usual slogans. And he said that, uh, that actually Hamas should be uh, toppled, that the Hamas uh, authority in Gaza should be removed. Uh, but the question is then, what next? And he said, he argued, that the PA could actually be brought back to Gaza, you know, riding in Mahmoud Abbas and his people riding in on Israeli tanks. Um, I also noted that the other commentators have noted that in his uh, public announcements, uh, Netanyahu has not stated that the goal of Israel's war is the removal of Hamas. So uh, could you comment on sort of Israel's dilemma there, what, what they may be trying to do or what they, what they may have as a goal, and, and really, in a sense, the impossibility of them of having success in this context? And the other question is about the effect of a long mobilization on Israel. They, they've said they've mobilized 300,000 reserves. This is a small country, and you're taking sort of the people who are in the prime of their work, you know, the workforce, out of the workforce and having them sitting around doing nothing for the most part, but, you know, maybe invading Gaza. What's the long, how long can Israel sustain this kind of posture? Are you finished? Um, which is, how long can it sustain it? I don't think it can sustain it for very long. I don't think Israel as a society, as a country, as a state can withstand the war that lasts years, for instance, like what we see in Russia and Ukraine. So what we're speaking about is uh, a few weeks. Um, I don't know how many weeks, eight, nine, seven, ten. Um, it depends on how the campaign rolls. Um, so that's in, in terms of the timing and in terms of mobilizing the reserves, in terms, as you said correctly, also these reserves would mostly be doing nothing except protecting um you know uh, within israel um and freeing up the the regular army to conduct its attacks or protect the northern front and the southern front uh and invading gaza i don't think israel really knows what it wants to do uh, i think they're trying to conjure up political objectives because i think at the heart of it it's a revenge campaign so i, I don't think that there is 
clear, cool-headed, minded, military and political brass discussing um, the concrete political objective of what could be done in Gaza. I think that there is just a rage. I think they're in this moment of where they cannot accept what happened. And I think they're just seeking out revenge. So I think we sometimes give too much credence to Israel's strategic thinking when in specifically this moment, they're not thinking strategically. Now, as things roll, they might come up with something, but I'm not sure what. Historically, Netanyahu has been a very, very cautious leader, um, despite his, you know, uh, Likudnik upbringing, despite his right-wing credentials. He's, he's not been a person that is, um, you know, focused on entering risky maneuvers and wars or conducting campaigns that could lead, um, you know, to a lot of different results, including his own political downfall which I think is already starting, you know, the clock on him is already has started. His, his political career is already, you know, in finishing, you know, at least within Israel. No matter what the results are, I think he's going to be held responsible for what happened at some level. So there is there is that level of, you know, us sometimes giving Israel too much credence when it comes to having an actual concrete objective. I don't think they know what they're going to do. I think they that at some level now they're also engaging psychological warfare. And I think they're giving as much space for the air campaign to continue for this ridiculous uh, genocidal air campaign, because I think it's actually targeting civilians. It, it goes to the heart of the early air power doctrines that came out of Italian and British um, academies after the First World War, where, you know, just target the civilians, make the civilians suffer, and perhaps the civilians will turn against their own uh, uh, governing body, um, against their own resistance. I think this is the logic of what's happening now by destroying institutions, infrastructure, and by targeting families in their homes. And this horrific campaign has been allowed to go on by American uh, green light uh, and by you know the Western media mobilizing and completely dehumanizing Palestinians and, and their actions in the past couple of days. So I'm not sure that they have a strategic objective out of this. At some point, depending on the result, um, they could also be in a very different position because another point, which is also very clear to me, is that the more they depend on the US, the more they're depending on the Europeans, the more Israel's isolationist stance in the past 20 years, no matter what the result is, will also, they'll have to pay a political price for it. This American backing, which is in the moment, with this European backing in the moment, will also lead back to discussions of a Palestinian state and a political solution and a lot of different things that will happen in, 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 the, in, the, in the day after the campaign. Um, I, I don't think the Americans will continue to just back this Israeli refusal uh, to engage on a political level with the Palestinians. Um, no matter what the results, but the results could diff go, you know, differently. I think we're in a moment where a lot of possibilities could happen. So I don't want to like, you know, chart it out. But this dependence on the U.S. at this moment, this dependence on the EU, will also backfire against the right wing in Israel. Abdul Jawad, could you talk a little bit more about the current situation in the West Bank? Obviously, you're speaking to us live from the West Bank, where you are, and. You know, as you said earlier, with the the uh, most almost all of the media attention on Gaza, 
and on the kind of war propaganda and atrocity propaganda that Israel has been putting out, um, increasing violence in the West Bank is being sort of mostly ne- neglected. And we're seeing, uh, we, we heard today that Israel has closed the border with Jordan and um, workers from Gaza have been left stranded and, and, uh, and so forth. And there's an increase of settler attacks as well so uh could you speak to that i mean yeah i mean there's there's an increase in settler attacks i've i've touched on that earlier um look i think assad the the current situation in the west bank is a marker of so much difficulties and dilemmas that face people in the west bank the first is having uh, a pa that has decided to cooperate with israel on multiple levels um which means that you don't have an organized movement in the West Bank. You don't have the ability to mobilize people in an organized fashion. That's the first element of why we're seeing a lack of concrete mass response, at least for the moment. The second is that the West Bank also suffers from the separateness that Gaza has with Israel. What I mean by that is that there's no intimate relationship or intimate encounter between Israelis and Palestinians in the West Bank, except in very uh, minute places where friction could happen. And typical actions of civil disobedience, of protest, are met with heavy firepower, which leaves people like sitting ducks. Um, And this creates a lot of fear. You, You don't feel the agency in engaging in these protests as much as you feel as sitting there as a sitting duck. And this is leading us to a place where Palestinians are searching, what is the, how do you chart a politically effective action at this moment to support Gaza and supplant it and try to support it? I think it's it's a very difficult conditions in, in, in the West Bank, geographically speaking, demographically, economically, but also politically. And I think people are now thinking about that. They're in this mode of thinking and trying to conjure up ways to support um gaza at this critical moment but also support themselves because this is not only something that touches gaza it touches us all and um and i think you know what is important is that at this moment as people think things will start to roll and people will start to imagine and create new modes of resistance uh in the west bank as well the, the settler thing is that the settlers are also interested in, in, in lightening the, the West Bank fund. They're interested in pressuring people in the West Bank. They're interested in an ethnic cleansing campaign in the West Bank, in horror and terrifying people. So they're a wild card. Even for Israel, they're a wild card because I don't think the Israeli military brass or intelligence brass is interested in any flare-up in the West Bank. But them roaming around and creating havoc could also lead to um, deadly confrontations happening like what happened today in Qusra, and for that to expand the mode of participation of Palestinians and also um, resisting against settler attacks and their invasion to uh, villages or uh, otherwise. So that's another element. And the third element is that you have an organized resistance movement in the north of the West Bank specifically, and maybe some cells here and there. And And they've been engaging. I mean, they have been engaging. Whatever, whatever means they, they have. Uh, in Tulkarim, there was an operation. In Jenin, there was multiple operations. There's shooting attacks everywhere. Um, they're less reported on. Um, they're less um, giving you know time on air. 
but I think that that's also a clear sign that there is uh, significant participation, at least from the organized movement. And you've always had in the past couple of years this form of individualistic or lone wolf attacks that could arise at any moment. But within the current conditions of fear in, in Jerusalem, closures of uh, people staying in homes, um, of the day-to-day -day civic space in Israel or in Palestine being completely halted or mostly halted, I think things are, you know, calmed down, at least on that level. People are not really meeting on the street because nobody's leaving this house. Um, there's less friction between Israelis and Palestinians in the civil uh, civil or the, the, the Israeli civil space in Jerusalem or otherwise. And that's why we've seen this quiet, or relative quiet, at least in Jerusalem and the West Bank for now. We know you have to leave in a few minutes, but um, I just wanted to just get your, your thoughts on what, um, you know, like the, this, the, the, the greatest insecurity in the settlers um, you know, whether they're in 48 or whether they're in the occupied West Bank, is that something like this would eventually happen, that when they, they would get a knock on the door um, from the Palestinian family whose land and whose home they are squatting in. Um, how is that, you know, deep insecurity um, playing out in, in, you know, in the Israeli media, for example, um, Hebrew-only media that that we don't, you know, that, that is not translated into English, or uh, is there any sort of like introspection and reckoning happening uh, that that you can that you can I see? Mean, there is there is introspection. I think there is not introspection in a sense of like, you know, this level of what have we done to lead to this. Um, what is our, you know, history of inflicting trauma on Palestinians that makes them want us want to also inflict trauma on them? I mean, I don't think that that level of introspection is there, even on the left. I mean, yeah. reading arts, as Ali is saying, today is like reading, you know, the right wing newspapers. I mean, it's true that they're trying to blame Netanyahu for it on some level because they have this internal reckoning that they're all looking forward to after this war ends. Um, and I think that's significant for us politically that even though they're going to come off as unified, that there is that political reckoning that is going to happen between them. But I think deep down on a psychological level, um, if you're a robber, you know that you're a robber. Um, if you rob people's places, you know that. I mean, and that's why just the presence of Palestinians creates anxiety among Israelis, you know, just our mere physical presence not even holding a flag or pretending to be Palestinians create this anxiety. And that's why they're always asking us to legitimize their existence. Mm. We're as if we're like, you know, a, a, a vanishing mediator that they have to ask us to recognize them, recognize their existence, their, their legitimacy, so they can feel a bit of comfort that even the people that they robbed are now telling them that they could stay here and they could live here. So there's that deep level of, of anxiety. And I think, generally speaking, when a settler um, society suffers, it's not used to suffering. There's a God complex at the heart of every settler um, uh, project in the world because these people feel on the top of the world. They can play with other people's lives. 
They determine how many calories enter Gaza. They can determine uh, the flow of movement of bodies across uh, the river and the sea. They decide on uh, the nature of our economy, our existence, our development, our future. So for them to suffer, for them to be beaten or punched or even slapped for a moment, always causes this kind of, you know, it's a humbling moment, but it's a moment where you refuse to be humbled. And this is what's happening with Israel. They're refusing to be humbled. They're refusing to recognize that there's no other way out of this conundrum with the Palestinians except for a political war. They always search for military security solutions because they know and they recognize deep down within their psychological makeup that they've committed crimes, that the original sin of creating Israel is that was built on crimes. It was built on rape and pillaging and poisoning wells like we recently discovered. Um, you know, tragic, ironic, even considering Jewish history is tragic and ironic that all tropes of anti-Semitism was actually practiced by Zionists. Um, you know, all lies and libels by Europeans were actually practiced in Palestine historically uh, uh, by, by, by Israelis. So I think deep down what this tells us is that um, this crazed uh, Israeli posture, this lack of thinking, this backing from the empire, this conjuring up yesterday of nuclear weapons, you know, like um, Biden's meeting with Golda Meir and how she told him about it. Like there's a secret weapon. I'm pretty sure he made that up, by the way. Biden has a long history of fabricating stories like that. Yes. Like the story he fabricated that he was arrested while trying to go and visit Nelson Mandela uh, and all sorts of other uh, fake stories. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's a figment of his uh, imagination. Yeah, I mean, probably. I mean, I'm not sure, but I think, yeah, I mean, just... It's, it's, it was meant to tell the world that, look, Israel at the end of the day has nuclear weapons and it could actually, you know, kill in mass the region, you know, not only Gaza, but everybody else in the region. And the secret nuclear weapon that, you know, um, is not a secret because it's an open secret. Um, and this claim that Iran wants to destroy uh, Israel. And now at this moment where you have a small infiltration inside of Israel that impacted one community, and now it's kind of almost contained at least for the moment, and where you have at least, uh, and where you have, you know, it's true, Gaza's resisting, it's making significant blows psychologically to the, to the Zionist regime, but at the same time, that, you know, at this moment where you feel vulnerable, you start conjuring up the ability to mass kill people in the region, you know. Um, so I think Israel is born in sin and probably it will die in sin as well. Well said. <laughs> um, we uh, have our next guest uh, with us in the wings, Asa. Do you want to introduce uh, Loki for us? Yeah, sure. Um, Abdul Jawad, if you if you can stay a bit longer, um, it'd be great. You know, we, we could uh, interact a bit more with our next guest. Yeah, sure. If you've got a little bit more time. Um, so our next guest is Loki, who is well known to our viewers, friend of the show as well. Um, Loki is a British Iraqi musician, rapper academic and increasingly in the last few years journalist and um we welcome you to the show thanks for joining us 
Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And I hope anyone watching this will take the opportunity to support Electronic Intifada, um, not just by liking, sharing, subscribing this video, but also uh, contributing to Electronic Intifada um, because it has been an absolutely vital source for all of us uh, in the world um, and I hope continues to be for many decades to come. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Loki. And it's, uh, we didn't put you up to that, but it's, it's, it's very <laughs> hopefully much. Hopefully not dec decades. You know, you know, maybe but hopefully we can retire. Yeah, we, we would actually like to, to we'd, we'd like to go out of business in the sense that we, we, we no longer, we wish we didn't need to exist. And we hope that yeah. that will be the case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we wanted to have you on to help us kind of tease out and debunk the just, you know, cascade of um, propaganda, vile, repulsive propaganda that has been coming out, um, you know, all over social media, but also by international journalists who are just retweeting what they heard from someone who heard from someone who heard from an Israeli soldier and therefore lends it this like, you know, credibility that of course um, is not backed by facts or sources or any sort of anything. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this happens? What's behind this sort of um, just unbelievable propaganda and, and how the media is just taking it and running? So I think it starts with understanding uh, Zionism as a top-heavy movement, as it always was, meaning that it has great sway among the political and media elites of the world, but has very little sway with people on a person-to-person -person level. So across these decades, we've seen effectively the integration of British and US, and even in cases like Canada, in the Netherlands, you see the integration of the intelligence services of those countries with Israeli intelligence services. And while we understand the way the media functions in our countries as being the uh, first and foremost a mouthpiece of the permanent invisible governments of our society, um, it would make sense that that relationship um, continues to manifest in this way. There is also a sort of uh, a servile, um, what would see itself as a form of sort of philo-Semitism, what is it in actuality a, a, um, um, a willingness to be subjugated to the mythologies of Zionism. Um, among our media classes. But it's also not just psychological, it's material in a direct way. But before we get into this story of particularly I-24 and where the beheaded babies uh, story came from, um, I just wanted to really look at the way in which the Zionist idea is, is experiencing the, the, the death spasms essentially, this social arrangement is unable to sustain itself. And what you have is the concentration camp of Gaza, the, the, the place where Palestinians are flung and kept at arm's reach, where they are essentially interacted with by Israelis through machines like drones and uh, F-16s and F-35s. 
breaking out of that place and how Israel was able to be taken to the place that it was. So firstly, what you have is a movement where uh, key power uh, centers within the Israeli military and intelligence establishment have been trying to overthrow their own government for the better part of the past year. Now, this has been documented in different ways. You had the US intelligence leak where the CIA were monitoring phone calls of those in Mossad and said Mossad are encouraging these demonstrations against Netanyahu. What you also had was examples of uh, Netanyahu's son and um, uh, Ben Gavir even pointing out that some of the organizations demonstrating against uh, the Netanyahu regime are funded by the United States. So on the resistance side of the equation, they are monitoring these contradictions becoming stronger and stronger within the Zionist idea. You have a push from those stalwarts of the Israeli um, intelligence establishment like Ehud Barak to push out uh, Netanyahu once and for all. And you also have the last two wars in Gaza waged without the participation of the group which is believed to have launched this most recent operation. So they did not participate in the last two wars. The perception among the Americans and the Israelis was that that particular faction was almost out of the game, that it was all quiet on that front. And so what happened was you have these contradictions within the Israeli political, um, military and intelligence elite, which opened up the space for this type of operation to be conducted in the way it was. You have the building up of pressure in the West Bank, which committed more Israeli personnel there, Israeli uh, occupation forces there. And you've also had the building up of forces in Lebanon, which is so fearsome to the Israelis that just two days ago, you had Israeli soldiers um, on the edge of uh, southern Lebanon shoot themselves because they feared, shoot other soldiers in friendly fire because they feared that what was approaching them was a vehicle of fighters from Hezbollah. What you also had just now, just before we came on, was the pure panic of some birds and perhaps it seems one or two drones from South Lebanon coming across and activating the alarms in hundreds of settlements, at least, in uh, northern Palestine. So what we're talking about is a situation where the contradictions are growing more and more. And this awareness, you know, you have to understand, in the Western media, they often present those who fight Israel as irrational. I mean, that is the baseline of how they are presented. But actually, these organizations are far from irrational and have been studying Israel and have a far more sophisticated understanding of the way the Israeli, um, the, the political entity of Israel functions and is arranged. Now, in yeah, uh, pertaining um, to the... Yeah, so, Loki, sorry to uh, butt in. Um, we're going to come back to this but we've got another guest with us now live from gaza and he's very short on battery so we're gonna Please go ahead, um, go ahead welcome go ahead. to the show khalil abu shamala welcome 
Khalil, can you can you hear us? Yes, hi, hi, hi from hi. Gaza. Yes. Hi. Um, tell us uh, what's happening uh, in in your neighborhood outside your window. Um, tell us what the last uh, few hours have been like for you. Yeah, first of all, I live uh, uh, western of uh, of Rimal neighborhood, which was destroyed during the uh, the last two nights. Uh, uh, the 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 scene is is un, unimaginable. You nobody can can imagine what what is happening. Even even I used to 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 go to my office uh, every day, but uh, since two days, I did not leave my home because I don't want, as a human being, to see what what happened in uh, in a Rimal neighborhood. It is not a Rimal; it is the wide de destruction in in Gaza. Uh, the the uh, Israel military airplane continue. Uh, pumping, continue uh, destroying the the homes, the the civilians, the, the the goals that they are talking about, according to Netanyahu, he claimed that the the goals is military military goals and Hamas uh, Hamas institutions or or um, or centers, but in fact, the results of their acting is is very clear. Most of the people who were killed and who are killing, uh, killed uh, during the, the 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 day, are infants, children, women, uh, old people, uh, patients, people who even cannot move from place to another. And you can you can you can say that Gaza is not Gaza. Gaza now is not Gaza that we we know uh, uh, just one week ago, and the if the, this will continue, and it seems that it's so early to to say or to talk about an ending of of this uh, aggression. It is real, real aggression. I I I I was. Uh, I am a witness, uh, uh, and I, uh, as a human rights activist, uh, and I, I was, I, I'm the former director of the Association for Human Rights. I documented many of aggressions on Gaza, but this is, this is unpredictable, and and any, it is completely different comparing uh, to what happened during the last years. Uh, the, the the problem here and the crisis that we are coming very soon for to to see a humanitarian crisis. The, uh, the war started Saturday, just three or four days ago. Uh, today afternoon, the electricity company announced that they uh, the 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 fuel to uh, continue uh, support uh, providing electricity is stopped. Uh, the hospitals will uh, announce tomorrow at two o'clock that they cannot uh, continue uh, hosting or receiving uh, uh, injuries. Uh, the uh, Ministry of Health uh, today declared that 
the capacity of all hospitals in Gaza Strip is uh, 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 is complete, and they they have no uh, capacity to to uh, receive. Uh, uh, they are talking about uh, beds. Uh, Israel, yeah, uh, uh, refused even for a humanitarian line. Uh, According to demand or uh, for, uh, from the the Egypt government, yes, there there is a, a, a efforts from the United Nations, uh, uh, Egypt, uh, UNRWA, and 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 according to the news, uh, uh, USA uh, uh, joined the, the, these efforts to uh, to make access for humanitarian line to support. To, uh, to transfer fuel, uh, medical supplies, uh, food for, uh, through the Rafah border. But yani, until this moment, nothing real happened uh, on the ground. What we have now is bombarding, continue killing people. Even, even yani, I myself, uh, maybe seven or, or more, uh, from my cousins uh, the, were killed, uh, but I even can could not say sorry for for my my cousin because because everybody is interested in in himself. We are we are sitting now while I'm talking to you with my uh, family, wife, and the three boys, and even I I have the spokesman of you. And by the way, he he. Uh, he received the call from uh, Israel military to leave his home from uh, from a neighborhood uh, uh, north, uh, quite north of of, of Gaza. And this is this is the case. This is, it, it is not him. We are talking about the, the majority of they. They are waiting from a call at any time, asking them to leave their homes because they uh, will uh, bombard. Last night, my my brother also slept with his uh, family outside of of his home, and because because he lived in the middle of Rimal neighborhood. This is this is what we have now. Uh, we are very disappointed. More, not most of the Palestinians, all of the Palestinians, because because they ask us as as a victim to condemn to condemn the the uh, Hamas or the resistance uh, act against the occupation. They don't. They 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 forget the international national uh, national law they forget the four geneva convention they even forget the humanitarian dimension and and you 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 may listen to uh, israel defense uh, uh, ministry of defense forces when he described palestinians uh, as animals so so this is this is uh, uh, unfortunately, the the scene and the situation and what we have now, and and we, yeah, thank you. I I know electronic intifada and and uh, I appreciate a long time ago, long years ago, uh, what what you are um, 
making and 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 efforts but at this on the same time we have many many of uh, different stories who don't want even although they know the fact although they know that palestinians lived 70 years ago under occupation under severe occupation we have if we if you want to, to talk we have many of 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 violations many just choose what what type what kind of 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 uh, crime or or violations against the humanity uh, in in the Palestinian territories, and we cannot we cannot imagine we cannot believe that anybody say that we I don't see I don't hear because everything is very clear on TVs. Just just we and Palestinians don't want anything. They are they are not looking for a, a, a kind of life. They they struggle for a life itself. That's uh, Khalil Abshamala. Um, I, 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 you know, we we can't understand what you're going through right now. Um, do, you know. do, do you know what? Do you know what? Do you know what, my friend? What what the 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 talks that we uh, are interested uh, since the morning? Yeah. Nisma Nisma is a 20, 22 years uh, old. She she asks, what will happen? And Noor is uh, twenty three. Says I don't want to 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 die or anyone from my family to die. We want to die to die together because I don't want to live while missing any of you. And and I'm I'm not talking about myself. This. This, this is the case of every single person in, in Gaza. Yesterday, a mother who lost her children in one of bombarding say that my kids died before they eat. And two, 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 two hundred thousands of of Palestinians in Gaza are at UNRWA schools and different. Uh, places they fled from from their homes look this is this is the, the democracy uh, i i as a human rights who worked for for more than 20 years in the human rights i felt shame when i talk about the the international principles i used to say to the europeans that we deputize you to teach the palestinians the young Palestinians about the the principles of a human rights. How how I can convince a person, a, who a young people, uh, a young or or the youth who are in the twentieth, twenty or to to thirty or age about the international law and the international uh, uh, human rights law, while nobody from them. Has, has they have never be out out of Gaza? They they don't know. They they just know about the the other world through the internet and the the TVs. Look how 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 they want us to be good people. They want they ask us to be good victims, not good people.
Yeah, solidarity is conditional when it comes to the West. Um, Ali, did you did you want to ask Khalil? And we want to we want to let you go before too long because we know you only have very limited battery. Yeah, I just want to say thank you, Khalil. We we know your work and we admire you, and we can only listen and try to absorb the enormity of what you and your family and everyone in Gaza is experiencing and pray for your safety and uh, hope that we will speak to you again soon in happier and better circumstances, God willing. Inshallah, inshallah, inshallah. inshallah. Thank, thank you. Thank you also and thank you for your effort. I know Ali long years ago and I know how much he, he worked and he, he, he tried to Yani, yani, may, may God bless you and, and your work. I, I know how, I can imagine you know, the difficulties that you face, uh, not not in, in other dimensions, but in, in to work in, in the middle of American, American, uh, I'm, I'm, I mean the, 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 the official uh, level, not the popular yeah, level, yeah. because we don't. Yeah. I have I have many friends from USA, and I receive them, uh, yani every year, at my home, not at my office. Yes. Thank you, Ali. Thank you very much, Khalid. Thank you. God bless you and protect you. Um, that was Khalil Abu Shamala. He uh, was the director of the Adamir um, Center for, for Human Rights uh, in Gaza for many years, um, friend to a lot of us here at the Electronic Intifada. Um, we want to bring back Loki and also Abdel Jawad uh, to talk more about the, the, the level of propaganda, the level, you know, Khalil was talking about the conditional support, how Palestinians need to be the perfect victims in order to elicit any sort of um, compassion or empathy or even sympathy from the West and, and uh, especially the governments in our various countries. Um, Loki, let's come back to you. Um, if you can try to pick up where you left off. <laughs> well, I just wanted to bring to people's awareness that it's just been reported that a young man has been arrested in Manchester, UK, supposedly for wearing the Palestinian flag on his body. This is the claim. Um, when asked, police stated it was for common law breach of peace. They then put a section 35 on Manchester City Centre, threatening bystanders with arrest. So, and, and, and the title of the tweet from Twitter to Joseph Conway is uh, Greater Manchester Police have arrested a young pro-Palestinian protester at St. Peter's Square, Manchester for wearing the Palestinian flag. Um, on this question of media, I guess I wanted to take it in a slightly different uh, direction and look particularly at this question of Elon Musk. Now, him being somebody that owns Twitter means he is somebody with quite a significant level of power. But his and, you know, because he was targeted so heavily by Israel lobby group, the ADL, sometimes we may get the impression that actually he's not that bad, but I just wanted to point out one way that hasn't been given much attention, that he is actually a direct participant participant in Israeli um, war games. So obviously it's known that he is the, um, you know, his company SpaceX 
is uh, very well known and it actually launched spy satellites for an Israeli intelligence firm named ImageSat International um, fairly recently. Now, ImageSat International is so deeply entrenched with the Israeli military that its CEO is a current reserve in the Israeli Air Force. Also, you have several figures within it who are formerly from Elbit Systems. And essentially what ImageSat International does is it identifies targets through satellites from places it can't get into as in by moving into the airspace. So for example, Israel has bombed Syria a thousand times over the last five years, right? Now, in order to carry out those airstrikes, the targets are identified via satellite um, rather than being um, the planes entering the airspace uh, directly before the strikes. Now, uh, SpaceX, which is Musk's company, launched uh, these satellites for ImageSat International. And, um, you know, it was such a popular decision with the Israelis that the Israeli embassy in the US actually publicly thanked Elon Musk on Twitter for the launch of the spy satellites. And ImageSat International also publicly thanked SpaceX and Elon Musk for the launch of these satellites. So he's somebody that is directly in a material way involved in this war, which is a, a, a regional war, um, uh, essentially. And I guess the question before of what we were getting to about the beheaded babies is if you look at I-24 as a institution, it is um, an organization that in a Haaretz investigation they found had become increasingly pro Netanyahu in order to obtain um, a license uh, to operate in the way that it wanted to, to the point that Yair Netanyahu was able to call them up and cancel particular guests. Obviously, I-24 has um, former Israeli military and intelligence personnel all over it. Obviously, in addition to that, you have um, the... Uh, the um, the other aspect of it, which is the Israeli prime minister's office has regularly given, was found and claimed by employees in this Haaretz investigation to regularly give directives to employees um, and high ranking figures within I-24. Moreover, Patrick Drahi, the owner of this channel, which was responsible for the bombshell of the beheaded babies, um, is somebody Loki, could you just say for for viewers who aren't familiar, when you mentioned the beheaded baby, maybe yeah. beheaded babies, could you just sort of give us sorry ABCs of that? Because I, a lot of people may not know what the story is there. Well, I mean, unfortunately for, for us here, every single front page in, in the British press has led with this story, which uh, came out from one of the settlements, which was engaged by uh, resistance uh, factions and the claim was made by a journalist for i24 that uh, up to 40 babies uh, many beheaded were found by or around 40 babies was her exact uh, phrasing um, were found and many of them were beheaded now I'll, I'll cut to the chase and be clear. I believe this is an example <clears throat> of Israel's lies, which it's told over and over and over in many different um, contexts in order to irrationalize those it is trying to fight and delegitimize their, um, their 
their form of, 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 of fighting. Now, I-24 was accepted by so many in the British media as a credible source of information for this, that, like I say, newspapers who go to great lengths to lecture others on the so-called superiority of the British media because of its uh, laws around libel and whatnot, have run with the front page that is almost a verbatim reproduction of what the journalist of I-24 said. So for that reason, I was just pointing out just how deeply entrenched I-24, and worse than that, Patrick Drahi, the owner of I-24, is with Israeli military and intelligence. So for instance, Patrick Drahi, the owner of this channel, um, bought the, uh, the the newspaper Liberation, which was founded by Jean-Paul Sartre in France. And he put in charge of it uh, a former agent of Unit 8200, Israel's um, uh, Signals Intelligence uh, Unit. And so much so that when Patrick Drahi became the largest shareholder in British Telecom in this country, the British government launched an investigation on a national security basis into his procurement or becoming the top shareholder in, in, in British Telecom. So we're talking about a whole infrastructure of information peddling, which works against those of us who want to assert the right to Palestinian life. Um, you know, and if people think that the Corbyn, I mean, this is on the British side of things, they think that the Corbyn anti-Semitism lies were something, then they're going to be in for, you know, a treat with what's going to happen now because you are going to see full spectrum dominance. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to apologize that I have to go because I, I have another uh, uh, event I'm participating in a few minutes. Um, but I just want to, to say that regarding this, to, to re-emphasize regarding this atrocity propaganda uh, and the fake stories that have made the front pages of all the British press of uh, dozens of babies being beheaded, that this serves a purpose. The purpose is to dehumanize Palestinians, to uh, turn them into what Yoav Galant, the Israeli defense minister, called human beasts into the eyes of, in the eyes of the international public in order to justify and facilitate what I can only call extermination. Uh, I don't necessarily mean the entire extermination of all Palestinians, as much as some Israelis fantasize about that. But what we are seeing in Gaza is extermination, family after family being bombed in their homes, whole families being killed together. Listening to Khalil Abu Shammala talk about how his daughters are saying, uh, or, or, or his family members are saying, we'd rather all die together so that we, no one has to survive the horror. Well, there are many families that have been completely wiped out in Gaza over the last few days. And what may come next in terms of a ground invasion may be even worse. And I believe this atrocity propaganda is designed to facilitate that. So it's really important for all of us to confront it and debunk it uh, as as much as we can. Um, 
please excuse me. I wish I could stay for the rest of the discussion. It's absolutely fantastic. But just for all the viewers who, who are here, uh, this will be available uh, on YouTube and up on EI. So I'm going to come back and watch the rest of the show that I'm going to miss right now. But thank you. Thank you all. And I, I'll look forward to joining you again soon. Thanks, Ali. Thank you, Ali. That's Ali Avunima. He's our executive director here at the Electronic Intifada. Um, Abdul Jawad, I know you have to also uh, uh, leave soon. I wanted to get your take on on what on what Loki has been explaining um, about the um, this this real concerted effort to to use propaganda to um, to expand this notion of dehumanizing Palestinians so that it's easier for it's more palatable. Uh, to enact the kind of genocidal attacks that Israel has been has been involved in um, over the past few days. I think, uh, I mean, Loki explained the details that he knows much better than I do, um, uh, at least in, in the UK. And uh, the story behind the story, let's place it that way. But I think there are two things here. Um, in the long term, Israel is trying to shrink the space for advocacy and struggle for the Palestinian cause uh, across the world. And this is one of the impacts of trying to dehumanize the Palestinians in this mass scale. But in the immediate level, it's also what Ali said and what I said also earlier, it has a lot to do with um, allowing Israel to go crazy, to suspend its regular engagement in Gaza, its regular mode of massacre, which was based on like, precision guided missiles on uh, knocking the roofs with rockets you know it's it's one of these ironic things where even uh, at some level now Palestinians in Gaza are just demanding the regular massacre and not this form of massacre that is happening this more extensive form of massacre um, so it's equal in my eyes to you know uh, what the American administration under Bush did before going into Iraq you know a concerted disinformation campaign that is meant to allow uh, for Israeli response and for Israel to regain the balance on the bodies and uh, of little kids in Gaza, of women, children, men, and families, um, to gain a sense of their, uh, you know, power, uh, the power to revenge and avenge. And I, again, I, I can't emphasize this more. I, I just don't see the strategic objective here. I think they lost this battle in the first 24 hours. They lost it significantly. It created the shattering experience in the Israeli mentality. The world that they knew before Saturday is not the same world that they woke up to on Saturday. And I don't think they can recover from that fully, but the way they're trying to rebalance their psychological, the psychological hit is again through a, uh, a, a highly instinctive pulse which is um, go in kill kill more um, and use air power in this very destructive manner so to do that they need a lot of legitimacy for the West this conflation between Daesh and Hamas also politically doesn't make sense not because they're not making the distinction between Islamist movements and their different orientations etc but you know perhaps in, in 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 a couple of weeks you'll have to negotiate with Hamas so now you call them Dash, and you don't want to negotiate with them. But perhaps you have to. I mean, maybe it's not up to you if you want to or not. 
So, I mean, it's on, on, on all these levels, Israel is doing a lot of mistakes. I don't think they have a lot of cool-minded people at this moment taking any decisions at all. I think they've lost it. And, you know, even in, in political science and, and strategic thinking, there's always that moment where you think being crazy is has its utility, you know, has its utility, you know, uh, you know, I can I can go crazy at a moment or I lose it and, and do things that I couldn't have imagined before to do. Um, but I think um, the West, the US, Europe, I think at this critical moment in the Palestinian struggle, what is needed is an immediate um, rise of, of all those supporters. I mean, um, this worry that, you know, the current conditions and how it's portrayed in the West and in the mainstream media should not choke us. I mean, at this moment, we need the support of the entire world. Gaza should not be left alone. Um, the voices should come out on the street. And we should start pushing back against this blood libel being spread by this machine. And we should stop, you know, our kind of complacency with what's happening um, by uh, energizing whoever supports the Palestinian cause uh, on multiple uh, levels and where, wherever it can be done and however it could be done. Because I think this is a critical moment also for Palestinians in Gaza to feel the support of the world. I mean, if they do feel that they're alone, that also causes uh, a lot of harm um, to the people in Gaza, to their current struggle, and to the futurity of the Palestinian struggle itself. Thank you for that. Um, Loki, what's what's your response to that? And, and how do you think we can, uh, we must start pushing back against uh, these just vicious repulsive smears and, and the, the journalists that peddled them? And, well, especially, and especially pushing back against the repression that's been yeah. increasing in the West, especially in Britain, America, yeah. and Canada. So I think uh, we should definitely discredit uh, the Samirs as much as we can, but we definitely shouldn't fall into the Corbyn trap, which was to entertain the allegation ad nauseum and sort of lament about how unjust the allegation actually is. As has been laid out, it serves a strategic purpose in the psychological war. What also changes those terms of engagement is the material equation. So for example, Palestine Action has today released the sites, the details for 50 different sites in the UK where there is an involvement with the arming of the Israeli occupation forces. What we also have are ways in which we can look at Israel and Zionism as an idea, and rather than seeing assertions of power, we see vulnerabilities. So, for example, the way Palestine Action um, engaged with the presence of factories for Elbit Systems in communities, those became vulnerabilities rather than signs of strength. Another, and this was the problem with Corbynism, is that it was constant turn-the-other-cheekism, which meant that people became just dizzy with turning around, getting slapped and slapped, and never fighting back. So essentially, we became functionally speaking, Israel lobbyists, because we entertained talking points that came 
from a defeatist idea and an idea which um, prioritized political power over political principle or an aspiration for political power over political principle. And the Palestinians were essentially set by the wayside as something we'd get to a little bit later. The Palestinian Authority was deferred to. International law was uh, relied on. We're not in that phase of the struggle now. Yeah, I understand at certain points people may see that as a necessity. I never have, and I don't anymore. And we are not uh, held hostage to the worst aspects of Corbynism. So we've identified 50 of their sites, and those are sites that people can take direct action to shut down. When we look at the examples of what can happen within the green line, we have to look at Ma'arakat Saif al-Quds as having within it many different prototypes of things that can be followed. So, for instance, for one day during that period in 2021, May 2021, Palestinian construction workers, almost 60,000 of them, went on strike in one day. It cost the Israeli economy tens if not millions of um, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars just from that withdrawal of labor for one day to the point where the head of the Israeli Builders Association said, we can't build without them. What you also saw was Palestinian transport workers go on strike and 300 trips were canceled in that day, right? So the withdrawal of labor made the functioning of Zionism as an idea even more difficult. What you also have is 50% of the pharmacists in the Zionist entity are Palestinians. You have other parts of the sector, that is, uh, other sectors of the economy that they haven't been driven away from. And that is why that period of time is, is um, instructive, because it contained what is referred to as shell al-iqtisadi, the economic paralysis that is a necessary phase of the dying of Zionism. And so we can look at ways in which certain uh, institutions or bodies that look like assertions of power. Because the other thing about the Corbyn period, as Asa will tell you, is that there are elements of the Israel lobby that blew their cover during that time. Even us, we didn't know the names of some of these Israel lobby groups until they went tooth and nail against all of us and against Corbyn. Well, now we know who they are. Yeah. And now we see more clearly and we have clarity about where they're reaches and so you understand that actually these expressions of power can be vulnerabilities and and cracks within the monolith and i think our job is to work open those cracks you know because water wears down rock and we have uh, the struggle of a lifetime on our hands and so we have to understand ways in which we can act effectively and i think to be honest part of the miseducation the political miseducation of our generation in this country has been misdirecting us towards uh, corporate behemoths that we are supposed to campaign against, who frankly, it doesn't make that much difference. If I, if, I, if I had a bank account with Barclays and then I don't have a bank account with bank Barclays because of Palestine, it makes not as much difference as if I, as one person, walk and shut down the Israeli arms factory in my own community. So what we have to do is increase a criticality and a literacy about the ways in which Israel acts 
within our society and work out ways we can act to be of assistance to the uh, liberation which is coming. Indeed. Um, well, we're going to wrap this up, um, but I wanted to get some uh, final thoughts from Abdul Jawad and then also from Loki. Um, as Abdul Jawad, as as you you know, it is evening in the West Bank. Um, can you talk about um, what uh, you know what what you're what you're looking at um, and and how? Uh, what you expect uh, over the next uh, couple of days? I mean, the next couple of days, I think we're going to see more of the air campaign unfold. We're going to see more skirmishes also happening in the north with the possibility of it spiraling. Um, its intensity is increasing um, of the blows that are being taken by Palestinian and Lebanese groups with Israel in the north. I think in the southern front, the air campaign will roll and will continue with its bombardment of Gaza as Israel prepares for a ground invasion, that it will decide whether it, it's going to be uh, limited, uh, semi, uh, you know, the depth of it, the extent of it, it will start to decide and, and try to outline what exactly it will do in Gaza. Um, you know, the, the type of statements that we're seeing from Israeli military is, is stating, um, generally speaking, this holistic approach, uh, this humanitarian corridor with Egypt, trying to bring people into the Sinai, uh, making people uh, in total fear of uh, the possibilities. Because in a ground invasion in Gaza, and if it's a total ground invasion, we're looking at, a, a you know, a situation where uh, we have thousands of uh, Palestinians killed, if not tens of thousands. Um, it's not going to be an easy uh, uh, a ride. It's going to be bloody. And I think this will lead eventually to the uh, awakening of people inside uh, 48 and also in Jerusalem and, and in the West Bank. I think this is a moment I called in one of my articles recently where everything is up in the air. No? and everything can happen and also uh the possibilities are myriad um you can't really predict um how things will roll if israel comes to terms with what happened to it it could become more limited if it starts to have a more rational objectives around its kind of response but this vengeance and this will and this conjuring up of the will to fight in ways that makes the Palestinian a total enemy is, is something that should, we should be aware of. And we should also take note of because it, it is opening the space for wide-scale massacres that we haven't seen for a long, long time. Um, and that's why, at least now, it's a, it's a moment to mobilize and not sit down. Uh, it's a moment to, to make... Uh, to push back against a lot of the disinformation, um, like uh, what Loki just outlined, and also through other methods, no matter what. I mean, um, this is a moment for everybody uh, to think, to act, uh, and 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 to mobilize. It's a very critical moment in the history of the Palestinian cause. It's something that we'll look upon and we'll remember dearly for long years to come. 
And sometimes when you live in these moments, this, these very large scale historical moments, no matter what they turned out to be, I mean, it's important to be actors in it and not just uh, watchers. Uh, and that's my main message, at least. Thank you so much for that. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks. And Loki, um, your final final thoughts. So what the Israelis are banking on um, is the threat of ground invasion and the, um, the airstrikes will ensure one of two things. So either that they are not required to carry out a ground invasion because they don't want that, or if they do carry out a ground invasion, that there will not be resistance. Now, the Israeli military traditionally, without calling in its reserves, reservists, as it has done, is about 160,000. So now it's supposedly called in 200,000 reservists, which makes it um, at 360,000. Ideally, when they are fighting street to street, they want to outnumber their opposition by 10 soldiers to one. There are believed to be 40 to 50,000 resistance fighters within Gaza. Now, when Israel is engaged in that way, these are soldiers who are, frankly speaking, and I don't mean this in a, in a, in a sort of to be unkind, but these are soldiers who are used to bullying disarmed populations in the West Bank by the Palestinian Authority. And that obviously now has become not the case, thanks to the last two years of uh, inspiring resistance that Israel has been met with in the West Bank by a new, younger generation and different groups, right? But they are used to flying drones, they are used to sitting in Unit 8200 listening to calls. They are used to blackmailing. They are used to sitting behind turnstiles. They are used to going on the beach in Tel Aviv, then going home to London for nine months, then coming back and, and, and spending some time there. They are not used to hand-to-hand, street-to-street engagement. Israel does not want a ground invasion, but it may have to do that. You will get massacres like Shuja'iyah if they carry out a ground invasion, but you will have more losses incurred to the Israeli military, which we they will find hard to justify to their population. Bear in mind, you've had flights from Bulgaria taking people out. You've had uh, flights from, uh, from Germany now being announced that will be taking people out. So while information about that will be difficult to get a grip on, we will see people leaving. You also have seen almost all Israeli companies, believe me, this is crazy, on the stock market, their value has decreased. The value of their shares have decreased. Um, The shekel is falling. So the economic effects, bear in mind, when they're taking all these people out of the traditional economy, these reserve soldiers, and putting them on the edge of Gaza, to try and scare people, the the economy will suffer more and more. So it's becoming more and more difficult to sustain the level of fascism required to maintain this unjust social arrangement. And that's where sort of these these death pangs that we're talking about come back in. And also, just to add one last point, they're lying about the death toll, and I'll explain how. So Israel yesterday 
announced that it had the bodies of a thousand five hundred uh, fighters within the Green Line, and these were people that supposedly had come over and then been killed by Israel. Now we've seen from human rights groups footage of people that had come in holding their hands up and then being dead on the floor. And the idea was that Israel was engaging fighters. Well, actually, I would argue that what has probably happened is people came over when the fence came down who may not have been armed, who may not have been part of resistance factions, and they were massacred. They were massacred by the Israeli occupation forces. We've even seen now reports coming out of, oh, bodies of resistance factions fighters have been found in buildings which were bombed by them by rockets, right? So there's an attempt to try and now blame the presence of these bodies, right? Which people, you know, journalists are not being able to go into Gaza, but they are within the green line. So journalists are seeing bodies on the side of the street who are not being wrapped up and who are not being buried. What's Israel doing with those bodies? That's what I want to know. And that's before you even get to the death toll in Gaza, which is obviously over a thousand people now. So when we're receiving the death toll, we're being told, okay, so there's a thousand in Gaza and and a thousand caused by the the Palestinian uh, operation on the 7th of October. No, there's a thousand five hundred who Israel claimed to have within the green light. So there's a lot about what they're trying to do in terms of defining the terms of engagement. I think that's the key thing to take from this. Do not allow your enemy to define the terms of engagement at which you deal with them on. Do not engage their talking points ad nauseum. Fine, discredit them, throw them away. They're rubbish. They're only meant to divert you. Push where you want to go and where you have strategic objectives and push where they don't want you to go. Let's not let's not spend another three years entertaining the fact that we have some type of irrational hatred for any type of religious identity. Rubbish. Rubbish. <clears throat> well, I think that's a fine place to leave it for now. Um, I want to thank our guests, Abdul Jawad, Omar, Loki, uh, of course, Khalil, Abu Shamala, uh, and Abdallah Nami. Um, and Ali and Asa, and uh, I really want to thank Tamara Nassar behind the scenes, um, putting in the most. Um, and uh, yeah, please uh, share this video, like and subscribe. Uh, we have a donate button on the top of the Electronic Intifada website, electronicintifada.net. Um, we will be back. I think we're going to try and do these live streams every other day or so. Um, and uh, so please stay tuned, keep informed, push back, and stay safe, everybody. Um, thank you all so much. Till next Take time. Care. Thank you, everybody. Thank, thank you. you very much, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. All right.